So we are in Philippians uh, chapter 2, and let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you that um, we really are here to uh, rejoice in your humiliation. And so we praise you and we give you thanks that you were willing to step, as it were, off of your throne. And while not giving up any of your authority, you came to earth and lived like a man and became a man so that we could be saved. And oh, Father, if, um, if nothing else gets said today, may that pierce the heart of some and draw them to Christ and declare to them that our God is one who justifies the ungodly because of Christ and his finished work. And so we praise you for it and give you thanks in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we once again, as I said, turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We are intentionally moving very slowly and deliberately through this passage because we don't want to miss any of the glory and the wonder of the revelation of Jesus Christ in this passage. We said last week that the text can be neatly broken down into two parts, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. This is the second week in a two-week study on the condescension or humiliation of Christ. And next week, it's my hope to come back to this text once again to meditate on the exaltation of Christ. And whether we can actually do that in one message or not will remain to be seen. And if not, then we'll just pick it up on Easter Sunday. For our purposes this morning, however, we'll, we'll focus once again on the humiliation of Christ. And to do that, I want to offer a five-point outline that seems rather cryptic in your bulletin right now, but I think it will be understandable as we go along. Um, and upon these, we'll, we'll kind of hang our thoughts this morning. I want to review them as... I want you to view them as descending steps of the humiliation of Christ. First, God eternal. Second, emptied by adding. Third, descending, descended to serving. Fourth, humbled through dying. And fifth, disgraced by shaming. And some of this will be reviewed from last week, and that's by design. There were things I wanted to say last week that there wasn't time for, and so we're going to fill in some of the gaps today. But let's begin, as always, by standing together, and let's read the text. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. 
in the larger picture that I want you to see this morning, Paul is giving us a description of Christ's systematic descent from divine royalty on the sovereign throne of heaven to the lowest possible status as a human being, and the lowest status that ever a human being could experience in this world. To begin with then, the first thing Paul tells us is that Jesus Christ is God, eternal. This is where it begins, because this is where eternity has always been prior to the Incarnation. He has always been, and even after the Incarnation, and even now he is eternal God. Verse 6 declares that he was in the form of God, and we learned last week that the phrase in the form of God does not mean that he merely appeared to be God to us and, and was not, in fact, God. No, that's not what it means. What it does mean is that to the extent that he could be seen or perceived in heaven before the incarnation, it was only in the form of God. It was in the form of God. He existed for eternity in the form of God. His essence has always and has never changed from being God. And he has always looked like God. Before the coming into the world, before the word became flesh, he always existed as eternal God. And Jesus himself affirms this. You remember when he was having an argument with the Pharisees, and they said, we are children of Abraham. And he said, if God wanted more sons of Abraham, he could say to these rocks, become sons of Abraham, and they would. And, and they said, but we are, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus' response, response was this. Uh, they said, could it possibly be that you existed before Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. We see this also in the, New Testament, the Old Testament book of Exodus where Moses encounters God before the burning bush that is not consumed. Moses was actually speaking to the pre-incarnate Christ. We see it again in Isaiah 6 where the prophet steps into the temple and finds himself face to face with the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one seated on the throne, high and lifted up. He comes face to face with the Lord God Almighty. John tells us in, in his gospel, chapter 12, that the one Isaiah saw that day was actually Jesus. It was he who sat on the throne. It was his glory that Isaiah saw. And so you see, in the beginning, the second person of the Trinity, to the extent that he could be perceived accurately, was always perceived in the form of God. But then, God so loved the world that he, what's the next word? Gave his only begotten son, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to redeem a people from their sin forever. This required no small sacrifice on the part of Jesus. First he is presented as eternal God, but now we behold him as emptying 
by adding. He is emptied by adding. The next important phrase here, uh, in Jesus' descent, Paul writes in verses 6 and 7, look at this with me. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. These verses were presented with the greatest mystery of the Bible, how God could become a man. That eternal God could become a human. That he could be conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a teenage girl and born into the world, just as every human baby is born into the world. Paul describes this as Jesus emptying himself. And as we said last week, the great debate on this passage throughout the ages is, what does it mean that eternal God emptied himself? We might be tempted to ask, of what did he empty himself? And if you answer that question, you step over the line of heresy already. Because that is not what Paul is speaking of. We get into real trouble when we think that somehow Jesus jettisoned some of the divine attributes in the process of becoming a man. And yet he lost none. What part of God can be cut off? How many parts of God can be cut from him before he stops being God? He cannot jettison some of his divine attributes. Someone asked last week, well, surely his omnipresence, surely he lost his omnipresence. No, no. Remember, this is God in, two, God in three persons, but in Jesus, it's, it's two natures now. He is human, yes, but he is also divine. And God is spirit, and spirit is where? Everywhere. You say, how can that be with Jesus? I don't know. But it is. This emptying him, himself was something else. Because if God were to cut off from himself any of his eternal perfections, he would cease to be God. But God can't cease to be God. Rather, as Roger Ellsworth explains... He laid aside the glories and riches of heaven and added to himself our humanity, to his deity, so that he was, at one and the same time, fully God and fully man. It's easy to get confused here because the word emptied strikes us as meaning that he emptied himself in the sense of losing something of himself, but that is not what the text says. And when we're forming our theological propositions, we need to be careful only to go so far as what the text says. And what the text says is that he emptied himself, look at the words, by taking. He emptied himself by taking. Paul's teaching us something about Jesus, by the use of a strange kind of math, 
that supposes that subtraction, there is a subtraction that comes by addition. And what is being subtracted? Clearly, it is not anything essential to his deity. And we see that throughout Jesus' life and ministry. Once in a while, I mean, you see him, humanity, humanity, humanity. He's acting like a man. He's responding to temptation like a man. He's speaking like a man. He hungers like a man. He thirsts like a man. He gets tired like a man. He sweats like a man. And then once in a while, something breaks forth from him that is absolutely divine. And most clearly, we see that on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see it in his miracles. We see it in a variety of ways. It was obvious, was the obvious, visible, and perceivable glory and majesty of God that distinguished him as a member of the Trinity before being born into the world. And in that sense, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be defended or demanded. Rather, he willingly chose to veil his glory in human flesh. We sing that at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the deity. He is still glorious, but it is glory obscured or veiled by the flesh of the man. Sometimes theologians summarize it all by saying, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Sometimes um, we get into this and we think, wow, this is really deep. The reality is it is really deep. I mean, we're all in the deep end here, right? And we have to be so careful when we come to essential biblical doctrine related to Jesus Christ and any other essential biblical doctrine, the key is to slice it thin and to get it right. And that's not always easy. It's not always easy. But beloved, it's so essential. It's so essential that we understand these things. And so sometimes, even though theologians come up with formulas to describe God in a way that we can ponder, they're difficult. And, and so they try to offset that by making it simple, like saying, remaining what he was, he became what he is not. And he is helpful. This kind of a statement is helpful. What he's saying, in other words, is while Jesus continued or remained what he was, that is, fully divine, he also became what he previously had not been, namely human. He is both. And by the way, this seems like a good place to remind ourselves of the purpose for Paul revealing these things about Jesus. You remember the purpose? We, we need to not lose sight of Paul's purpose here because he was talking about the unfathomable, unfathomable condescension of Christ for this purpose to inspire us to relate to one another with similar humility. We struggle to put words together that are both true and trustworthy to the text to explain the humility of Christ. And it is almost too much for us. 
And then maybe in some sense it is too much. It is so glorious and so bewildering that the one who was sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6 is now in a cattle trough in Bethlehem. Such was his humiliation. And Paul is telling us, when we speak of humility in the church, when we speak of preserving unity in the church, this is the kind of forthrightness. This is the kind of intentionality that is required of us. Do you feel like Jesus felt like becoming a baby? Did he feel good about going to the Garden of Gethsemane? Listen, if you wait till you feel good about humility to be humble, you'll never be humble. Love is, is giving to the other person what they need that you have because God wants you to regardless of how you feel. Regardless of how you feel. In verses 3 through 5, then, Paul commands, Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in our relationships with one another, God calls us not to humble ourselves in the same way as Christ humbled himself. You can't because you never started where he started. You're not deity. Regardless of how you may act, you're not God. There is a God, but you are not him. And so in our relationships, this is how we are to think. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to humble ourselves not in the same way, but with the same mind. That is, we must stop thinking first about our own rights, our own dignity, our own interests, and make the concerns and needs and interests of others more important than our own. This is what love is. This is what humility is. And this is how Christians proclaim the excellencies of Christ by the way that we live. This is how we show the world what Christ and his gospel are like. This is how the church makes the gospel visible to the world. And Paul is revealing the condescension of Christ in order to motivate humility in us. And at the same time, we're learning things about Jesus that we wouldn't have known if he hadn't explained it here in Philippians 2. And we exercise humility when we rank ourselves under one another in order to serve and to build others up. I praise the Lord for uh, you older people who uh, work with the, the children every week. And, and, uh, and that's no small thing. And you are on your rotation and you go in. And I know some of you do it just, you know, you just love to do it. And others of you do it regardless of how you feel. You're going to get in there. You're going to change diapers. You're going to play with children. You're going to learn how to speak gibberish. And you're going to do it because 
You want Christ to be glorified in you. You're ranking yourself under to serve. And some of you, when you choose to come to small group, you have to say to yourself, I don't feel like going. It's too far to drive. I don't know those people very well. And then you remember, oh, I'm not going for me. God doesn't want me to relate to them for me primarily. This text says I'm to go for them. There's something about being with them that they need. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go. It's an act of humility. It's an act of ranking yourself under. Some of you this week decided that you would go ahead and get baptized in a a few weeks. Praise God for that. You're going to stand before people and let me dunk you underwater publicly and come back out of the water, and you're going to look silly, and so am I. But somewhere along the way, you said in your heart, Jesus is worth it. This is humility. It's, It's not about me, me, me. It's about Christ, and it's about others. So we rank ourselves under, and we serve. This is why Paul is walking us through the descending steps of the condescension of Christ. Jesus is eternal God who emptied himself by adding. And then number three, he descended by serving. He who eternally existed in the form of God. I mean, I mean, how much do we even know about that? We know Isaiah 6, right? We know he's sitting on his throne, and there are flaming seraphim who are at his beck and call. They are ministering spirits, Hebrews refers to angels. And I suspect the seraphim are maybe part of that genus of angels. And And there he is. And yet, though he existed in the form of God, he descended into serving not just humanity, but he became a servant. This statement further qualifies what it means for him to become a man. He would certainly have, would it certainly have been possible for Jesus to come into the world as a human king? He could have at least been born in Jerusalem to the wife of the high priest in the shadow of the temple, but he wasn't. He could have been born into the home of Herod, I suppose, who was part Jewish, maybe he could. But there there were people who had status, who had wealth, who were looked upon favorably by the world. He could have been born, but in the mystery of God's sovereign providence, he orchestrated, even from the the moment of creating Adam, that there would be a line of families, a bloodline that would lead from Adam through Abraham, through David, right, through Boaz, all the way into the the Holy Family. Joseph on one side and Mary on the other. Mary, the only one who participated in the process of him being born. He was born homeless. He was born 
to a Jewish peasant girl in a place where the only suitable sleeping accommodations for the infant was a cattle trough, a manger. His life was characterized not by leading and ruling, but by helping and serving. No doubt he helped his father in the carpenter shop as a young man. He lived in obedience. We are explicitly told he lived in obedience to his parents. And children, it's obedience to your parents is not only what is right, it is what Jesus did, and he was God. When he, became, when he began his ministry, think of this, he became a, a server of food to people. He saw them as, as like sheep without a shepherd, and they were hungry, and he fed them. He provided wine at the, at the wedding. Why? He didn't want the bride and groom to be embarrassed. And so he provided wine. And, th- and, and get this, we haven't talked about that in a long time. Who are the only people who knew that he turned the water into wine? The servants. The guys who were hauling water were the ones who got the privilege of seeing the miracle. And they were the only ones. All the mater deed or the master of ceremonies knew was, ha, they saved the best wine for last. Nobody knew. He served. He healed the sick, the blind, the demon-possessed. He took time to bless and associate with children. He counseled the outcast and, and touched the unclean, the lepers. He wept with those who grieved. And though the whole world would approach him only to take and take and take, he willingly served and served and served. He who was from all eternity sat, as it were, upon his glorious throne in heaven with flaming seraphim at his beck and call, who was known as the captain of an army of angels, was now seen by men as a man, not unlike any other man. And consider this, he never became governor of Jerusalem. He never landed a band of soldiers. And when Peter tried to start the charge, he stopped him. If you live by the sword, you would die by the sword. He never led a revolt. He never wrote a book. He wasn't even made the leader of a synagogue. And do you remember what he said to his disciples when they asked which of them, or if two of them, could sit, one on his right and one on his left, when he came to his kingdom? He said these remarkable words, Mark 10, 42 through 45. Listen closely. You know, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, who were proud Their pride was getting the better of them, and here's how Jesus responded. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your, what's the word? Servant, more literally, your slave. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I find that to be one of the most astounding statements in the Bible. And there are many, to be sure. But this is one of the most shocking. If you know Daniel chapter 7. Are you familiar with Daniel 7? We've talked about this before, but let's flip back just for a moment. I think I have time. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 13. Okay, let's remember what just happened. Two disciples came and they said, Jesus, we want to sit in the highest seats next to you. We don't want your seat. We're not going to be like Satan or anything. Just want to be next to you. And Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Really? Well, what did Daniel's prophecies say? Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, what? The Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? God the Father and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, listen, that all the peoples and nations and language should, what's the next word? Serve him. And yet here Jesus is saying, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Isn't that remarkable? Here he is. He's finally come. And he comes humble, born in a manger, riding a donkey. And to give his life a ransom for many. To say that he descended from the glories of heaven to become a man is to say that for all intents and purposes, he laid aside his crown turned off his visible glory and awesome majesty and slipped into the apron of humble human servant. It wasn't that he was no longer glorious. He still was. It just, his glory wasn't visible. It wasn't that he was no longer sovereign. He was still sovereign. It just wasn't evident. Perhaps the most explicit illustration of this is found in John 13. I'd like for you to turn there with me as well. John chapter 13. You have to go to the left a little bit or poke your device to get there if you need to. 13 verses 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come. So this is it. His ministry is over. He's about to complete the ultimate work. He's going to be arrested tonight. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And by the way, that's to the Father means back to glory. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means he loved them to the maximum degree. During supper then, when the devil had already put, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, you can now listen to the theology here. This is John 13.3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him, given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. You get the picture? Knowing that he belonged to the Father, knowing that he had come from the Father, knowing he was about to go back to the Father, what would you do with that knowledge? I would say, listen, before I go, everybody bow down and worship me. And just once, no, no. He rose from supper, verse 4. He laid aside the outer garments, his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is condescension. This is humility. It really is quite extraordinary because the washing of feet at a banquet is the duty entrusted to the lowest, the lowest of slaves. To be a servant who waits on tables and serve food, that's a lowly position, but it's higher than the job of washing the guest's feet. I mean, you're a foot washer. How would you like that for a job? What do you do for a living? I'm a foot washer. It was their job. And to this position of ignominy, Jesus willingly stepped for the benefit of others. He stooped before them. He ranked himself under. We already know that Paul said, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, but listen to how Jesus says it. Go to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, listen to this. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is, this is the mind of Christ. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Who is the one who is most blessed? Jesus said, servant of all. And I, and I go back. To John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. Who were the only people who saw the miracle? The servants. And while you're serving people, you're going to see God do things in your life that you could never have anticipated. God will change you. God will bless you. God will give you joy that you could never have anticipated. 
So what we've seen so far, God eternal, emptied by adding, descended to serving and forth, humbled through dying. Humbled through dying. Back to Philippians chapter 2 again. We read in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It is stunning to think that the creator of all that exists, the very source of life by which all living things actually live, could actually himself die. We should not be able to read these words without a sense of awe and wonder stealing over our hearts. To be God means not only to have eternal life, but to be eternal life. He is life. Life that can never die. And yet, the very Son of God experienced what the other persons of the Trinity, consider this, the other persons of the Trinity never experienced. Nor will they ever. He died. Once again, Ellsworth is helpful here. He, he writes, It would have been an act of stupendous humility if the Lord Jesus had done nothing more than take to himself our humanity. But he did much, much more in that humanity. In humanity, he died. And why did he die? It was the only way for us to live. It's the only way. It's our only hope. There had to be a human being who would re represent us before God. But it had to be a, hu a human being of infinite worth. And only God could be that. The only kind of Savior who could actually do the job is a Savior who would be both God and man. In John 1 verse 4, we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the giver of life. He proved that again and again by raising people from the dead. How could he do that? Jesus is life. He is life. You remember after, or just before he raised Lazarus from the dead, and um, Martha comes to him as he's approaching and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's weeping. That's that passage where we famously read the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And in fact, a better translation there is Jesus sobbed. He sobbed. Such was his compassion to those whom he loved. And Jesus said, um, he, will, he will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And Martha thinks he's given her a theology lesson. And, and so she says, Jesus, I, I know that there will be a day when we are all resurrected. Then we, we, we will all experience resurrection. And remember what Jesus said? I am the resurrection. And the, uh, what's the next word? Life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he 
live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall what? Never die. Why? Because Jesus is life. And that makes it most incredible to learn that he who is life died. It's amazing. In order to accomplish the Father's will, to rescue the multitude of sinners, a multitude so vast they cannot be numbered, the one who is the very source and sustainer of life in this world willingly gave himself over to death on our behalf. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part in the same things, that is, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil. And then the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the what? The flesh. Being put to death in the flesh. Talk about condescension. Eternal deity emptied by adding, descended to serving, humbled by dying. But the death he died was no ordinary death. By this particular kind of death, he was disgraced by shaming. This wasn't just death, this was curse. This was curse. He became a curse for you. You deserve to be cursed. He became the curse for you. He became the object of all of God's wrath for you. It didn't mean just dying. It didn't just mean the pain. It meant the shame of utter humiliation. Paul could have finished his admonition toward humility by declaring that Jesus became obedient unto death. That would have been impressive. That alone would have been shocking that the prince of life humbled himself for our sakes, experiencing death. But at least we might assume that his death occurred by natural causes. That he lived a ripe old age and then died and God counted it for us. He could have died perhaps in bed surrounded by all of his friends and the people he had brought into reconciliation with God. I mean... At least that would be a kind way to finish his course. But no, Paul wants us to understand that Jesus, Jesus' condescension plunged him even to the depths of ultimate humiliation. And really, you could take everything that Jesus experienced it, experienced on the cross, and compare it to the biblical descriptions of hell. And they correspond perfectly. And so it is no overstatement to say he experienced hell for you. And so Paul says in verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The sentence of crucifixion inflicted upon a condemned man offered not only the most intense pain imaginable, but also the most intense shame possible. 
Long before the arrival of Jesus on the stage of history, crucifixion was already considered the most horrible means of death conceivable. The one being crucified was stripped naked of all of his clothes. Before the gathered onlookers and mockers who would see him, he was laid down upon the implement of torture where his arms and legs were stretched along the cross beams. And at the center of the open palms or wrists, the point of a huge iron nail was placed, which by the blow of a mallet was driven home into the wood. And then through either foot separately or possibly through both together as they were placed one over another, another huge nail tore its way through the quivering flesh to prevent the hands and the feet from being torn away by the weight of the body which could rest upon nothing but its four great wounds. There was, at about the center of the cross, a wooden projection strong enough to support a human body which soon became a weight of agony. And then the accursed tree with its living human burden, was slowly heaved upward and the end fixed firmly into a hole in the ground. Crucifixion was done in a very public way and in a very public place. In the case of Jesus, it was on a hill that was known then as the place of the skull. And you know what we call it today? We named our church after it, Calvary. The primary charge against the accused was usually written on a tablet, a titulus, which precede, preceded him on the road to crucifixion. And finally, that tablet of accusation was fixed upon the cross for all to see. The feet of the condemned, or listen to this, the feet of the condemned were but a little raised above the earth. We so often see in the pictures, he's, he's way up high on the cross. Literature I read this week, his feet were almost touching the ground. He was low to the earth. And because of this, the victim was in full reach of every hand or stick that might choose to strike. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and all the shame that death can possibly inflict upon a man. I think we overlook the shame. I think when Jesus says, anyone who wishes to follow me must take up his cross daily, deny himself and take up his cross daily. For most of us, that mean, that's not going to mean we get killed. Rather, it will mean we will be shamed. In some way, we will be shamed for identifying ourselves with him. A key term here in Paul's words is obedient. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Not obedient to Satan, obedient to his father. In that passage in Isaiah, the father was pleased to crush him for our sakes. And this is important because Jesus' death was not the natural consequence for his life, the way he lived. 
Rather, it was an act of obedience to the Father who had sent him into the world to make atonement for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or to use the word in Isaiah, God so loved the world that he crushed his Son. And he did it to make atonement for sinners. The point is that the humility which Jesus exercised was not the kind of humility we might see as an endearing personality trait. You know, some people just appear humble. It's not what he's referring to. Rather, it was grounded in a determined resolve to be obedient to God regardless of what, might, what it might cost him personally. And so in the garden, he repeatedly says, Lord, if there's any other way, but not my will. Not my will. And you may find yourself having to say those same words. I don't want to be humble. Not my will. Lord, not my will. I don't want to serve that person. Look, they're from a different race. They're from a different strata of status in this community. I don't, I don't want to, but not my will. Lord, I don't, want to, I don't want to go in and work with those children. I don't, I don't want to change diapers. I don't, I don't want to be teamed up with this person. Not my will. God, it'd just be easier for me not to say anything about the gospel right now. I might lose my job. People might look down on me. I might get demoted. Not my will. This puts the call to humility in a, in a whole different light, doesn't it? Paul's talking about more than merely being civil and courteous and kind to others. He's calling us to sacrifice what we believe to be rightly ours for the sake of others. That's mine, but you can have it. You can have it. My mother used to talk about her grandmother, and she said her, her no, her mother-in-law, and... Uh, she learned that she had to be very careful about things that she noticed in her mother-in-law's house because she would go over to the shelf and she would say, well, this clock is so beautiful. How long have you had it? And her grandmother would say, oh, it's a hundred-year heirloom. It's yours. <laughs> Everything she liked, oh, it's yours. It's yours. It's not directly what he's speaking of, but that's the mind of it. It's mine. It's yours. If it belongs to me, it belongs to you. That's why it was no problem in Acts chapter 2 for them to share all things in common. Paul's talking about more than merely being civil and nice. He's calling us to sacrifice what we believe is really rightfully ours for other people, even people who are convinced, we may be convinced, don't deserve it. Husbands should be reminded that there are, they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's paradidomi in the Greek. It's the same word that was used of Jesus being handed over to the executioners, except here Jesus is doing it to himself. He gave himself over for her. 
And wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, just as the Lord submitted to his Father in all things. And we should give of our money not only to the Lord, but also to the poor and to the Lord. Whoever gives to the poor lends to the Lord. And we should give of our time to anyone who is need and teach our children to do the same. We should stop thinking of ourselves as somebodies who are worthy of respect and begin thinking of ourselves as nobodies who should feel at home performing the most menial labor for others and for the body of Christ. I remember a brother one time, he was bringing his family to the elders for membership and we got to the part about service and, you know, what do you want to do? And it's a very, very capable leader. He would have become an elder, I think, if they had stayed, um, but they moved away for a job. And, but I'll never forget this. He, uh, we said, so what do you think? When you think? You're looking around the church, you're thinking, uh, maybe there's a place where I could serve. Where would you like to serve? And he said, well, I want to clean toilets. And we were like, what? <laughs> We've got somebody for that job. And he said, no, what I mean is... Um, I want to do the most menial thing that needs to be done. If the Lord wants me to do anything more than that, I'll be happy to do more. But why don't we start there, if you want me to? And I thought, man, I wish I had said that. (laughs) But that was never on my heart. He had the mind of Christ. Stop trying to be a somebody. Here's how Paul says it, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to consider, I want to exhort you to consider how far Jesus descended to save you from yourself, and from the penalty of your sin. You see, the only reason Jesus died was so that you might be saved. Never in your life have you experienced this kind of love. Never in your life will you experience this kind of love from any other person. Never in your life will you ever experience what it means to know Jesus Christ, apart from knowing Christ. And so I plead with you, stop putting it off. Stop waiting. Cry out to him today and say, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I know I deserve, I don't deserve forgiveness. I know I have earned your condemnation. But if this book is right, then you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for me on the cross. Oh Lord, I believe. I believe it, so take me, change me, forgive me, use me however you want to use me. I surrender. I repent. You are Lord. Save me. Eternal God, emptied by adding, descended to serving, humbled by dying, disgraced by shaming. This, beloved, is the condescending humility of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, let this mind 
this attitude be in you. Let's pray. Lord, I'll be the first to confess that I can't do this. I don't have the power. You must do it in me. But oh, Father, may I have a willing spirit to do whatever you call me to do. May these, your people, have such of the mind of Christ that they'd be willing to do anything that needs doing for your glory. And not just in the church, but in the world. We would let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works motivated by this attitude of humility like Christ. And one day, we will find that they are glorifying God with us on the day of visitation. Help us, O oh Father, change us. Forgive us for our pride. And humble us, we pray, for your glory and for our own joy. For we ask it in Jesus' name.